Can we give the Olsons a hand? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so thankful for their willingness to share their story. And sometimes it's not easy in a church context to share something so personal uh, with uh, the church publicly. Hey, my name is Ben, and I serve here as lead minister. Excited to have you. If this is your first weekend with us, welcome. If you're watching online, enjoying uh, your last final break until Thanksgiving comes, welcome. We'd love for you to like and share our live stream video. Comment below. Let us know that you're here, and we'd love to follow up with you uh, with any next steps that you choose uh, to communicate uh, with us. Um, as Dave and Michelle Olson communicated, one of the things that Dave, is, uh, Dave and Michelle are passionate about is helping people uh, follow Jesus with their finances. And uh, I want to share a bit about that here in just a moment. As you can see, this big sign that's hanging to my right uh, is uh, our 90-day generosity challenge, which we will step into next Sunday. You have a 90-day generosity challenge card in the seat back in front of you. We invite you at some point during the service before you leave to grab the card, take it home, talk about it with your fr uh, family, partner, whoever it is that you do life with, uh, and to kind of explore this idea, what does it look like for me to step into generosity, maybe for the first time, or increase my giving through a percentage or a dollar amount between now and Thanksgiving? And next Sunday, we'll provide an opportunity in our services for you to communicate uh, that you want to step into the generosity challenge. You can place that in the box, and the big sign we'll have uh, in the back. Uh, there are four ways to step into this challenge. I just want to highlight one of them. Uh, Dave and Michelle uh, hinted at it. Is, uh, September 15th is our Financial Peace University class. And so if you've been new to RCC, you're you know, thinking about how, in the, how does somebody give away a portion of their income to uh, any charity, let alone a church. Man, Financial Peace University, uh, I think it's right up your alley. M my wife and I took it a few uh, years ago, and it, 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 it really, you know, it, Jesus does this, but through the program, it changed our lives and helped us to give, uh, a, a, get a different perspective on finances and, and spending. Here's the cool thing about FPU, and I'll talk about this in just a moment. Uh, there's a family that came up to me after our services last weekend and said, hey, here's the deal. Uh, FPU uh, changed our lives, and we uh, were debt-free. We love helping people get there. So why don't we do this? We'll go ahead and donate $2,700 to the church, and we'll pay for 30 spots uh, for FPU. Uh, and so here's the deal, friends. The first 30 folks that sign up for FPU uh, will experience this class for free. Uh, all because of one fit. Yeah, you can give it up for uh, that family. Yeah. All because of one family that said, you know what, we want to give to this. It changed our life. It was meaningful for us. So if we can be helpful for another family, man, why not do that? And I say it all the time, but you guys are getting it. Generosity tells better stories. And if you f sign up for FPU, I think you're going to see that, what that looks like in real time. Now, it's September. Uh, everything orange is acceptable, Okay. So you cannot judge me anymore for my love affair with pumpkin spice lattes. Uh, football is starting on Thursday. Uh, baseball, well, well, I don't know if the Sox are going to make the playoffs this year, but I'm a Reds fan. I'm just kind of used to it. Uh, but I want to ask you a sports question relative to the spring, all right? So I need you to, you know, kind of get over the fact that winter's, winter's coming. Uh, how, many of, how many of you love watching March Madness? Any March Madness fans in here? Yeah, okay, yeah, one person. 
you guys aren't really good at college basketball, but you crush everything pro, so it's annoying, but I get it, right? How, how many of you watch the, uh, the tournament, NCAA tournament, just to see if any uh, teams will upset high-ranking teams, any Cinderella teams? Anybody in here? Okay, all right. This is what it's looked like to give a public speech and no one's paying. No, I'm kidding. Yes, I love that. I don't know what it is about the, the uh, Duke Blue Devils. I just don't like them, okay? And so, especially like when a small Christian college somehow makes it to the tournament and upsets a high-ranking team, I love that. Uh, maybe I have jealousy or envy, I don't, anger issues, I don't know. But in 1985, uh, a team, Villanova, was the Cinderella team. That doesn't matter to you now because Villanova always goes to the dance and they get pretty far. But in 1985, they were considered the Cinderella team, uh, and they won it all. Uh, and it wasn't easy because they had to beat, you know, scrubs, no-name basketball players like Michael Jordan. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. And the Tar Heels, they had to go through guys like Patrick Ewing and his Georgetown team. And it was an epic win for Villanova in 1985, if you can remember it. I was three, so, you know, that makes some of you old or young. Um, but, he, but here's the deal. What made this... Uh, what made this team so phenomenal, there wasn't really a star athlete uh, where, like, you know, every team that LeBron James plays on, if that guy doesn't put up 30 to 50 points, mathematically, the team's not going to win. This was not a team that had a star athlete, but it was a team that actually played together, and they won the entire thing. And I think we love that. We love the underdog story. We love the underdog story surprising uh, and, and winning and upsetting whatever, you know, unless if it's our team, of course, and winning the championship. Now, how, how, how does that have to do with money? Uh, I don't know, but here's the connection, okay? The church, one of the things that it's called in the New Testament is we, we are a body. We are a team, and we are a unit. And we all have different talents. In week one, I said, Uh, God is a God that created humanity in his image. And one of the things that we tell people what God is like through our actions is when we we express generosity. Sometimes that's financial, sometimes that's relational. You kind of get the point, right? And so what makes the church beautiful isn't that there's a star athlete here at RCC. And what makes the church so powerful is when the local church works together to move the mission forward. And, you know, Obviously, I'm jealous of their athletic ability, but I think, guessing here, the local church probably has more ground to gain than a, than a bunch of 20-year-olds winning a national championship. Although that is incredible, I'll never do that in my lifetime, but what would it look like if the church worked together to step into and express generosity? Now, if this is your first time uh, with us during this series, Last weekend, we took a generosity profile test. If you have your phones, you're more than welcome to go to it. We won't explore it like we did last weekend. The website is mymygenprofile.com. There's about eight questions or statements. You fill it out. It takes about 15 seconds. Uh, when you hit submit, it'll give you your primary and secondary motivation for giving. Also with that, you'll have links that'll give you scriptures and what compels you to give and the why behind you get the why behind your giving and that's that's great. The reason my motivation for giving might be different than yours, but that what that's what makes diversity so beautiful in the local church. Especially 
if you're in a life group, which will start um, uh, opening up here, like I think in like a week or two, is that when you're in community with other people, you're stepping in generosity with other people, you get to see different aspects of what God is like and what's, what other people value about God, even though you may not. And that's completely okay. That's to be celebrated, not discouraged. And so here are some of the gen profiles, okay? The first person or profile that we talked about behind these graphics behind me is uh, what's called a cause mover. People give because they can financially, they see a need, they're more objective, they're more black and white in their thinking, and that, that's fine. They see a need, they financially can give to the need. This is why I think GoFundMe on social media has blown up, right? People are connected emotionally to a story, they've got the margin to give to it, and they give, and they make a difference in somebody's life. And then we talked about what uh, Dave Olson shared, uh, folks that are budget keepers, and these people give financially, their, their generosity motivates, not necessarily because they think they can make a difference, although that's probably true, but they give because it's the wise thing to do. It, 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 it's, it's a sign of wisdom. When someone gives financially, it, it, it's the difference between someone who's wise and what Proverbs calls someone who's actually foolish. There's a third profile, and, and they're called a faith stretcher. If you're a budget keeper, which I'm not, <laughs> and you're married to a faith stretcher, which I am, oh man, you can have some uh, heated debates because a faith stretcher wants to give as an opportunity to grow their faith. And so a budget keeper might say, you know, honey, it's really tight right now. I don't think it would be the wise thing to do, which sounds good, and it probably is. But a faith stretcher says, you know, we don't give to be smart or to be wise. We give to be faithful. But both sides are okay. It's, it's, it's okay to have both perspectives. Then we talked about a disciplined doer, someone that gives because they want to be joyfully obedient to Jesus. So they don't give because it's wise, they can make a difference, or it's a faith thing. They give uh, because it's the right thing to do, right? I don't know if you, you're a little kid, you got in trouble, maybe your parents said, you don't act that way you know, This Is Us is coming on in a few weeks. You're a braver man. You don't act that way, right? I, just, I love that show, so deal with it. It's a great show. I probably need to go buy more tissues. All right, moving on. The reason why people in the local church give is because it's what we do as Jesus followers. We're part of the kingdom of God. It's, it's, it's what we do. And so if you connect with that message, you go, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian Jesus anticipates generosity, actually so much so that he would do sort of a lab with the disciples. He'd teach them some stuff, and, say, and he would say, okay, go to this local town, do these things, come back, and let's talk about it. Like, that, that's a trainer, that's a coach, that's a, um, that, 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 that is discipleship. And so probably Peter would say, okay, what's the packing list, Jesus? And Luke, I think 9, verse 33, don't, literally, don't quote me on that, but that's what Google's for. Jesus says, don't take anything. And this stuff like, what are you talking about? Why does Jesus say that? Because he anticipates and expects when the disciples go into these small towns to preach the gospel, to love people, that Christians in those towns would actually take care of them. There was no individualism in the first century like there is today in America and our culture. 
And so the final two profiles are community growers. These are folks that realize their motivation for giving is because we, we all play an effort, right? No dollar amount is too big. No dollar amount is too small. No next step is, you know, too insane or faithful or faithless. We, we are all sort of in this together, which I think, I hope, if you're that person, I think you're going to really dig this sermon today. And the last one is a legacy builder. These are folks that, I, I didn't even know Christians thought this way until about 15 years ago. I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but <laughs> legacy givers are uh, Jesus followers that set up meetings with financial planners and go, okay, what does it look like to tell the generosity story long after I'm gone? And so they, they set aside their net worth and, their, and all of their assets to give a portion of it to their church to their family and whatever, uh, whatever charities that are personal to them. If you sign up for FPU, you are a recipient of someone that was a legacy giver, a family that said, you know what, I'm going to pay for 30 spots because this is so meaningful to me. Uh, I want other people to experience what I've come to experience and know and love. That is a legacy builder. It's all of us working together for the greater good. Now, what we're going to talk about today is in Acts chapter 4. And the reason why this matters is if you're like a if you're a history nerd like me, the book of Acts is within a generation of Jesus actually living, dying, rising from the dead and ascending to heaven. So when we read about the first century church in the book of Acts, we're actually talking about people that have seen Jesus or their parents or grandparents have seen Jesus in their lifetime, all right? So the notion that Christianity is a fairy tale uh, would have been a ridiculous thought because these are men and women in the first century who, with their own eyes, saw this guy who claimed to be God. Now, whether or not you think Jesus is God Well, that's what the debate is for so many thousands of years, right? But these are people that have actually seen Jesus with their own eyes. And the reason why we want to step into this is because as a non-denominational Christian church, we don't get our proxy, which is to say the way we live, from an overarching denomination that maybe Catholics or Methodists would. We, We get our practices from the New Testament, from the book of Acts. And so let's look together uh, of how the first church and the, the church in the first century thought about generosity. In Acts 4.32, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote Acts, describes the church this way. The whole congregation of believers was united as one, one heart and one mind. Before Jesus was murdered on a cross, he prayed a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which you can still go there today, and he prayed to the Father, Jesus, make every church a mega church. No, he didn't pray that. What he prayed for is, Father, help all the churches be unified, to be one. That's his prayer. Not that every church needs to be a mega church and all this stuff, and there's nothing wrong with large churches at all. I grew up in one. I've worked at, I've worked at them. But the prayer that he had wasn't the size of the church, but it was the unity of the church that mattered. And here you see this being practiced in the first century, right? One heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. <laughs> no one said, that's mine, you can't have it, like, like a bunch of toddlers, right, parents? They shared everything. Like, this is not a Western American idea, is it? 
But this is a kingdom of God idea. It's, it's a value that's different than the country we live in. Often the conversations we have with other people. And that's okay, but our home is not here. We, we represent not America, but the indwelling of the kingdom of God here in the midst of our relationship. So let's talk about, with the time that we have, what are some convictions, core convictions, of the first century church in Rome? Which is to say, what are our core convictions uh, as a church in Salem in 2019? Well, here's the first conviction they had. I've said this before. God owns it all. God owns everything. Now, in uh, Acts 4.32, Luke says they didn't claim ownership of their own possessions. So in the first century, you had wealthy, middle-class, and poor folks financially, like, like every church in every community probably in America. And they had this realization or this thought process that we all have to is the money that flows through my household, the income that comes in, whether it's a salary, um, uh, you know, raises, uh, tax returns, I have to ask myself, do I own this or does Jesus own this? It's really annoying to ask that question, isn't it? The answer is yes. I can, I'll just say that for you. We're stepping into this 90-day generosity challenge next Sunday. My wife and I are talking about uh, how we are going to increase our giving. I've asked the staff and elders to do this because what good is leadership if we don't help lead the way? We're trying to think, like, how are we going to give uh, to the generosity challenge? How are we going to increase our giving? And my wife came home on Friday, and she's like, you're never going to believe this. I've been at my job for like three months, and I already got a raise. And we're like, this is, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Jesus is God. This currency called American dollars belongs to him, even though Jesus isn't an American. And now we got to talk about how much we have to, oh, why can't we just keep this? I would rather worship at the Church of Apple, amen, <laughs> than give all my money to the church, Right? Like, can we not be honest? We can't be honest here. Where can we be honest, right? I know. That's why you watch Dr. Phil. It's annoying. It's annoying to see an increase of your income and then having to have this conversation that even the early church had. Does this stuff belong to me or does it, or does it belong to Jesus? It's a, here's a Bible word. It's a sovereignty question. It's a lordship. Who, who's really the boss here in this situation? Do I own it, or I am, am I just simply a steward or a manager of it? And we can be, you know, incomes uh, increase and decrease throughout our life. And if we own it and we think we're in control of it, there are identity issues. If you don't believe me, uh, lose your job and then tell me how you feel about that right? That's really hard to say, but, but for folks that think like money is mine, I have to protect it, and then when they lose their job, it, that, that's an identity issue, which is to say that's an idolatry worship issue. And so the first century church had to come to terms with like God owns this stuff. And so if I come into more, I'm, I'm going to practice that behavior and give more to Jesus. In Acts 4.24, Luke says, they raised their voices together in prayer, so this is a prayer, an ancient prayer from the first century. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign is a word for like basically who's in control. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God, you, Jesus, 
You created this world. Uh, and in Colossians, Paul says everything's created by Jesus and for Jesus and ultimately has its purpose in Jesus. So here's a pretty, pretty narrow-minded statement to say, unless if it's true. People who are created by God are looking for meaning in their life, however they want to define that, but ultimately won't find that fulfilling unless if they're in a relationship with Jesus. Not religious, because we don't want to be religious, but in a relationship with Jesus. J.K. Rowling, I'm sure you've heard of her, I'm sure you and your kiddos have read Harry Potter, did not uh, have a posh lifestyle growing up. Early manuscripts of Harry Potter were written on crumpled napkins where all great ideas come from, I think. <clears throat> and when she released Harry Potter, you may or may not know this, she kind of did really well for herself. Actually, she landed on Forbes magazine as one of the wealthiest people in the world, and she landed on the billionaire list. Now, you might think, wow, she has arrived. But I think about like a month ago, month and a half ago, I, I don't know, I, I'm on Facebook more than I care to admit, she was actually removed from the list. I know, you're thinking, what did she do wrong? Why do we always go negative? The reason why she was moved from the, from the list is because of her generous heart. You see, J.K. Rawlings gave most of her earnings from Harry Potter away to organizations that helped mainly women, but single-parent families, uh, child's welfare, children's welfare, and helping crush the illiteracy rate in our country. She was removed from the wealthy because she stepped into generosity. And this is what she said when asked about it. You have a moral responsibility, moral responsibility, right? When you've been given far more than you need to do wise things, it sounds like a budget keeper, uh, with it, and to give intelligently. Ben, I, I would be so generous if I was a billionaire. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You want to know Why? Like, if I won a billion dollars, you know where I'd go? First thing I'd go, like, I'm going to go to Taco Bell. Like, I'd, be, I'd be a poor rich guy. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. Probably would. Probably Chick-fil-A. The reason why you wouldn't do that is because generosity starts with a behavior, not an amount. So she was proud. And I don't, I don't know if she's a Jesus follower, but sounds like it. Sounds like it. Um, it. It starts with the behavior, not the amount. So when she was poor, she was still generous. And that percentage, whatever percentage of income she would give away, never changed. What changed over time was her wealth amassed to get her in a position where she was on a billionaire list on Forbes magazine, which is why she could give it away. Not because the amount, see, generous people, the amount is irrelevant. It's the behavior and the trust that they are, <clears throat> that they are forging with Jesus that regardless of the amount or the, the wealth that amasses over someone's life, whether it's high or low, that percentage is still there. That's why wealthy people still give, because not the amount, it's because of the behavior. Um, most of you know, like, I'm trying to, like, really actually take my health seriously. So I've joined Orange Theory. I've lost a few pounds. I'm still, I'm still doing it. I've got a long way to go. But I want to take a magic pill, right? I don't want to eat salad. No one wants to do that. But I just want to wake up one day and lose 50 pounds. Well, guess what, sweetheart? You got to put the work in. Someone, someone who comes into a lot of money that hasn't been practicing generosity is going to go to the church of Apple. Like that, we're, It's human nature, friends. 
And so if you're here and you're like, how do I step into generosity? You know, what amount should I give? You're asking the wrong question. How do I start that behavior? The amount is irrelevant at first. How do I start the behavior of trusting Jesus with my, my finances? And you know why somebody asked that question? Because they have the conviction of the early church. God owns everything anyways. We're just stewards, not owners. Secondly, core conviction. God wants generosity for you, not from you. Second Corinthians 9-7, we talked about this last weekend, that God loves a cheerful giver. To which some of you, right, I love our church, some of you are smart alecks, right? Well, I just won't give cheerfully, then I don't have to give, right? No, that's not how it works. And no, I don't miss middle school ministry. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how it works. The cheerfulness doesn't happen before the giving. Come on. It happens after you're practicing the behavior of giving, right? The reward of whatever you're stepping into doesn't happen before you step into it, although we'd like to pop a magic pill and that would happen. It happens after the process. And so cheerfulness and giving happens after the process. And unfortunately, and it's very unbiblical, uh, we have made churches in America to think that faithfulness to Jesus always means you have a song in your heart and a smile on your face. Well, yes, guess what? Life is hard sometimes, and it's terrible, <laughs> and we have doubt, and people leave us, and they frustrate us. That doesn't mean God has moved away from you. Faithfulness looks like daily consistency and showing up and saying, Jesus, I don't know what's going on. I'm going to name the feeling that I have, regardless if I should or shouldn't feel this way, and I'm going to show up and be faithful anyways. Generosity is something that Jesus says, step into it anyways, regardless of what's happening in your life. I want to do it. I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do it today, all right? Uh, group participation. I'm going to ask you to extend your arms like this and make a fist. As super, as tight as you can. Don't, don't hurt yourself. This is a church after all. Um, as tightly as you can. When you live tight-fisted before Jesus, your friends, your partner, your spouse, whoever it is, you have to hold on to stuff. And guess what? I hate to break your heart, but you're not God. You only have two hands. So you have to decide what's really worth holding on to. And when folks are tight-fisted, as I once was with my finances and generosity, you have to hold on to greed. You have to hold on to anxiety. You have to hold on to fear, depression. Whatever it is, you have to hold on to that which hinders you from stepping into generosity. Keep it up. This is, a, this is a little workout session, right? Keep it up. But how does Jesus want us to live? Generously, cheerfully, open-handedly. Actually, the way a Jewish rabbi would pray in the first century, and even Jewish rabbis today, was they would stand up, lift their palms up to God, and begin praying. There was none of the sitting, and, you know, it was a very active, full-body participation. And we're when we open our hands to Jesus, we get to experience freedom, generosity, and I don't know if I believe this, but I'll say this, a worry-free life. I've been following Jesus for most of my life, and I still have anxiety about some stuff. But here's the deal. I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to, I don't have, to have all the answers. I'm allowed to say, even when I'm pastorally, pastorally counseling people, I'm allowed to say, I don't know. I don't know. I've given up the right to know everything about life. I'm trying to figure out myself. And there's a freedom when we step into generosity to live open-handedly. 
And, and we, you know, just, just to say this again, the couple that fronted 30 spots, like when you live open-handedly, you get excited that whatever you're winning in or whatever you enjoy, you get excited when other people experience what you've experienced. You're not jealous of them. You're not envious of them. You're generally excited that they're stepping into salvation, generosity, community, whatever it is. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And God wants generosity, not from us, but for us. It's something that he's going to do in and through us. Uh, Here's the third, well, let me share this verse in Acts 4.33. Luke says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Now, we think about grace in terms of like a salvation thing, which it is, but there are a million other graces in our Christian development. You will not grow in the grace of generosity if you do not step into it, right? But when you step into it, there are things that Jesus has only for you. Think about that. That's a beautiful thing to think about. Jesus has things that are only for you, just you, that he's going to unpack and show you. These little gifts along your journey through life that with any other spiritual discipline that that we step into, there are all these little gifts along the way that he's going to show us what he's like, what we're like, and stepping into that and, and, and shifting from tight fists to open hands. Here's a third and final conviction the early church has. God wants to accomplish something in us, but also through us. I'm okay with this, but I'm going to spend the rest of my years in ministry helping people wrestle with the tension that God loves them anyways. And here's what that looks like. Even most recently, about a week ago, I had a conversation with somebody that says, you know, I really want to start taking my faith seriously, and I want to really do a lot of good things for God so I can go to heaven. That's religion, friends, right? Religion's good advice, but the gospel is good news. Jesus already lived the perfect life on your behalf, so you wouldn't have to freak out, because he knew you would. You wouldn't have to freak out about being perfect. He's already done that. And generosity is the same thing. Generosity is not something on a to-do list where you're like, I'm super religious at giving money away. God will let me into heaven. No, that's, that's a different perspective. God has, Jesus, Jesus before the Father has already given the amount of generosity for you to be in a relationship with him. Meaning Jesus already gave himself on the cross so that you could have a relationship with the Father. When we step into generosity, our Heavenly Father is just excited that we're willing to step into that value. Parents, the same way you are excited when your kids at a young age are trying to talk. You don't punish them because they're not speaking eloquently yet. You're excited that they're trying to communicate with you and that you love them. The same is true for our father and generosity. Let me close with this. In Acts 4.34, Luke says, there were no greedy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land and houses, which was a sign of wealth in the first century, sold them, brought the money from the, uh, the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone in need. Friend, <laughs> what a beautiful statement, right? That we get to be, the local church gets to be the outpost, the billboard, Uh, sign of the kingdom of God here in Salem and our surrounding communities. Can you just just dream with me for a moment that people in our community would know that RCC is a place that they will be loved, served, and taken care of should should there be any perception of a need, be it financial, be it spiritual, be it relational, whatever it is. 
this was written before Christianity was legal in Rome. It was like you would die if you publicly said, I'm a Christian in the public circle. And what got this early church through a lot of struggle and persecution is that they owned generosity together. They owned it together. And so I'm going to pray, and I just want to, for the last time before next Sunday, uh, encourage you to grab a generosity challenge card and take that before the Lord this week and bring it back and let, let's step into generosity together as a community, as a team. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for uh, the truth of your word and the early Christians who, by all, by all means, should not have practiced generosity. They should have been running for their lives. Uh, Christianity was illegal. Um, women were mistreated, abused often. Children were considered less than. And yet all of these people in the Roman Empire found this weird little group of people so diverse, so loving, so serving, and so generous. And out of that, the kingdom of God was born and a movement became, the, a movement began and even spread to where we live. And now we get to tell the story of generosity through our lives. May we be like our heavenly father and express generosity. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.